everyone, I'm your host Genevieve and we're here with High Tea on Grow at Daily Hive. We want to give a shout out to Niche and Cannabis Wise for supporting High Tea. Today we'll be talking to a man who's been immersed in the cannabis movement and medical cannabis industry for over a decade. I met the next guest while I was doing field work in a dispensary in Toronto and he carted in a box of edibles um, and he was running one of the only medical cannabis dispensaries at the time in Quebec, the Medical Cannabis Access Society with his partner, later co-founding the first cannabis-focused clinic in Quebec, all before turning to his current role at Canopy Growth as the Quebec brand manager. So we're really happy to have Adam Greenblatt with us today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Adam. Well, I thank you for having me. That, uh, that really goes, goes back back a ways it totally does so maybe tell us a little bit about yourself uh you know how did you get involved in this space and also how old were you how old was i when i got into the industry yeah um industry i was 20 but i got into the i ran for the marijuana party when i was uh 19 19 yeah, like 18 19 but actually i got into it uh i became an activist after my dad uh started using medical cannabis for his ms and this was I was I was just turning eighteen. I was like seventeen point nine. You know? and, yeah. uh, and um and I was like, you know, using cannabis myself as a as a young, you know, no good nick uh teenager and getting in a lot of trouble for it in my in my adolescence and uh it was winter break and it was Christmas Eve morning. Um we don't celebrate Christmas with my family, but it was December 24th in the morning. Um, and, uh, and my mom woke me up. And my mom was like always the one who would flush my weed down the toilet. And she woke me up that morning and was like, hey, do you have any dope? And I was like not having it. I was like, it's, I'm like, mom, it's winter break. Like, please leave me alone. You know, let like, me sleep. Let me sleep. Like, and, uh, and she said... And I, you know, I'm getting defensive, and she's like, "No, no, no! It's like it's for your dad. Your dad is in like a lot of pain today, and, and he needs to try something else." And I was like, "Finally, you're listening to me!" <laughs> so um, I went downstairs and I like cooked up some cannabis into some butter in a skillet. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't have like you know the the background on edibles making that I that I do now that back then. But uh, fried some wheat up in some butter for my dad and gave it to him, and then. But I also took the opportunity to roll a joint in front of my whole family. You had to. I had to. That was, that was the moment. And, uh, and, uh, and, so, and they were kind of curious about it, but gave my dad the butter, and then I went out and did some, some Christmas Eve errands. And, um, and my mom called me while I was driving, driving around town, and she was like, your dad needs the joint. You need to come back. Whoa. Uh, yeah. He's not, he doesn't feel the, the edible or anything or, you know, he's not feeling the butter. It's not working. So he's right. got to smoke a joint. So actually I smoked a joint with my whole family around the dinner table that day. And, uh, and it was, uh, I mean, it was life changing for me Right. as a teenager, you know, like that was just the, it was the ultimate, uh, victory Absolutely. for sure. And it's- like, and like, I'd also like grown up watching my dad suffer with MS and I mean, he was pain free for the first time he dealt with he still deals with a lot of nausea and, and spasticity and pain and stuff like that and um, yeah I mean it was the first time in years years that he had you know had a smile on his face was pain free was um, eating a whole you know we ate like a big dinner that night like my mom even puffed the joint and like just went off and cooked a big <laughs> meal and and my brother my younger brother who was like the, the good one was like but I'm the good kid like I can and <laughs> so we kind of had like a bonding moment and um, and that was sort of the catalyst that got me into it everything so I, I I later moved to to Montreal after I finished high school uh the summer afterwards and I got involved with the block pod and the marijuana party which was the mm-hmm. really the scene back in the day uh, <laughs> really the same? Yeah, it was. It was. You know, I mean, like, cannabis activism is, has changed a lot over the years. Right. But back then, like, a lot, all the action was around the Marijuana Party of Canada. Right. And yeah. These, and, these, and, the, and the sort of, like, uh, the culture jamming of the, of the political party system. Right. You know, like, back then, it was just a, it was a big deal to just put Marijuana Party on a ballot. Right. And so I, I, I was invited to, to run as a candidate for the Marijuana Party in 2004, and I ran against Erwin Collar, who's the former justice minister, uh, who I believe extradited Mark Emery. Um, <laughs> so that was topical back then. And, um, 
and uh, yeah, and then I, I you know, I, I was working odd jobs for a couple of years in Montreal and doing activism on the side, and uh, and then in 2006 I got the opportunity to uh, start working at the Montreal Compassion Center uh, with uh, Mark Boris St. Morris, mm-hmm. and um, and for four years I ran that place, and really that was all-encompassing. It was managing the storefront, it was managing membership intake, it was being a bud tender, it was managing production sites, which were not, was which was did not mean the same thing as it does now in the right. LP world, you know? You know, I had several production sites I was managing. Right. Um, certainly not the scale that Canopy Growth operates at now, but... Uh, <laughs> And uh, and so yeah, that I did that for for four years, and then in 2010, I, I left the Compassion Center uh, to start my own thing. I was I was I was growing more cannabis then. I was trying to get my own um, cannabis enterprise going, and um, and with my partner at the time, uh, Aaron, we started a we started a little bakery mm-hmm. with some with some shake that I had lying around at my grow, um, and uh, and that bakery turned into a, the Medical Cannabis Access Society, and that was, uh, uh, and that was supposed to be just, we were going to start that as a kitchen, originally. Right. It was just it was supposed to be this wholesale kitchen. We had, like, five or six dispensary clients, which, you know, and there were, like, 12 or 15 dispensaries back then. Yeah. You know? So Absolutely. We were, we were supplying um, Toronto Compassion Center and, um, and the Vancouver Island Compassion Society. We were mailing edibles all the way out yeah. here. Medcan, uh, Medcan Access with Blaine Dowdle, uh, Medical Cannabis Club of Guelph. Yeah. Uh, uh, so you know that. Uh, but what happened was the uh, police in Montreal raided all the dispensaries, and we uh, were super fortunate to not be on any of the arrest warrants. So they didn't actually raid you, but they raided everybody else. Yeah, because we didn't have a. We weren't we weren't in a, a dispensary. Oh, you were the just time. a bakery. Yeah, it was sort of a right. you know it was it was in the back. It was on the periphery, right? Like right. our ev- our our cookies and edibles were in several evidence lockers across the country at the time, <laughs> but we were fortunate enough to not be arrested. And uh, but patients started calling me right away after those raids, and so we made the decision within a, a day or two to just start dispensing cannabis from where we were running our kitchen, and. Um, and that lasted for for four years. The kitchen was was uh, was really awesome. Um, my my former partner Erin was uh, was the was the head chef. You know, she <laughs> yeah. was developing all kinds of awesome uh, recipes, and uh, and we had a whole line of products, and uh, and we were running it as a as a kind of co op, so dispensary members could actually work part time in the kitchen in exchange for cannabis. I didn't know that you guys had that happening. Yeah, yeah, that's how we that was like a that was like a a truly patient centric nonprofit model that we were that we were running. Um, and and also at the same time we were doing we were we were founding uh, CAMCD, the Canadian Association of Medical Cannabis Dispensaries. That was all happening at the same time. So I was part of that like founding uh, nine members. Right. And um, and that was really when things started taken off you know health canada really seemed to be starting to listen and starting to understand it seemed that it, they'd actually been cooking up this this you know license this commercial producer scheme for for a little while and they started consulting uh people on it and that for the first time they like they did a big reach out to all the dispensaries right which was crazy because up until then the relationship with health canada was just it was purely adversarial right you know it was and it was and it was i mean they kept I mean, the program was so atrocious. It was really easy to beat on Health Canada and blame them for everything back in the yeah, day. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, Barron case. Um, uh, I'm not remembering. Barron was my favorite case. <laughs> <laughs> there were many other victories over the years. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, but yeah, Health Canada started talking to us. And we uh, and CAMCD was, doing, was getting a lot of coverage and CAMCD was really getting its message out there and... Uh, encouraging people to not just open dispensaries willy-nilly, but like abide by a standard to like understand what patient care is, mm-hmm. you know, to to really um, to really bring the retail side above board and to develop standards for it and to and to self-regulate in the absence of regulations. Right. Yeah, I, re- I remember hearing about like pre-MMPR that Health Canada reached out to dispensaries had, you know, consulted with them, but then they came back with a program that essentially almost 
I would like to say purposely excluded dispensaries. It almost seemed retroactive, you know, to... Yeah, yeah. So we were, that was also the time we were getting into being very diplomatic with Health Canada. Right. <laughs> so, you know, our spin on that at the time was... Uh, we're extremely happy that Health Canada has finally consulted with experts in the in the in the uh, you know in the scene. Uh, they've taken most of our advice, you know, because they you know they opened up multiple strains. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. it was just prairie plant stuff or your or your DG or your home garden. Yeah. yeah. They they did commercialize it. We'd been you know there was always the dispensary side, but at the same time this was when. MMAR grows were really the pre-LPs, right? right. This yeah. was when we were using MMAR licenses to supply our dispensaries, and we were commercializing it on that. I remember, I remember with Radek Kovacevic back in the day when we were both trying to get, he was trying to get like an insurance policy on his MMAR grow, and it was like it was things like that that were really advancing the movement, right? right. We were joining our chambers of commerce. We I were, do remember that. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Having yeah. great relationships with like local businesses and oh, the we, city. Like, we'd open a bank account and like it was the biggest <laughs> deal, right? Like it, it was all these like little things. We'd like, I remember registering Cannabis Access Society in Quebec and fighting with the registrar to let me use cannabis in a business name. You know, like, I tried previously to register businesses with cannabis in the name, and they wouldn't let me. Right. And uh, so it was always it was these little things. These little pieces were moving into place and coalescing. Um, and, and really, the activism then was just like, yeah, we're, we're above board. Like, we're not, we have nothing to hide. Yeah. Come on in. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then the, the uh, first MMPR was born. Yeah. And it was implemented in a in a really uh, coercive way yeah. you know like they didn't it was not uh, a gentle transition they tried no. to screw all the MMAR holders over yeah. you know they thought they could just pull the rug out from under everyone and then of course Conroy and Tucson and Allard um, they win the injunction yeah and uh, so for people who might not know what's what is the injunction okay so sure so the injunction um, the Allard injunction basically protects people who had a, a valid medical marijuana license before the implementation of the MMPR. Right. And has essentially grandfathered it into perpetuity. Like there's no, these, these like licenses are, if it was valid during a certain window of time, it's basically valid for forever. See, until I, did, until I didn't know that notice. until just today. I had thought that there was like some kind of timeline in that eventually they would have to get a grow license under the ACMPR now. But you're saying it's kind of like a it's like frozen in time. Yeah. Well, so like it was complicated for people who had to move or like right. moved in those years. There was like, no change of address. Yeah. There was no way to amend your license. So like, uh, if and a lot of people, you know, life changes. Yeah. Whatever, of course. The winds of time. Whatever. <laughs> People move. Yes, yes. People move. They got to, you know, people change their scripts. Right. Uh, whatever. So there was no mechanism for a while, even under the MMPR, for that to happen until uh, until that was resolved with the ACMPR. Um, but even still, with the ACMPR, like, your MMAR, it, it still didn't invalidate the injunction. Mm -hmm. So the injunction is still ongoing. Yeah. Until there is re truly reasonable access right. to medical cannabis in Canada. So at this point, that's a no. At this point, that uh, that that may be a no. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. Disclaimer. Yes, yeah, you know, got it. I'll have to ask her too, so. You know what I think is really interesting too. So at, at work, we we work with um, folks on the downtown east side. So we have a, a longitudinal cohort that we've been studying for like 25 years. We, not me, but other people. <laughs> yeah. um, and one of the really interesting things is that like out of there's about 2,500 HIV positive folks, not one of them access. Uh, through the legal cannabis program, yeah. although 50% of them report using cannabis for medical purposes. So I think yeah. that there's still like, there's this whole other layer of like vulnerable communities that yeah. we're just like not tapping into. So when we closed our dispensary with the transition to MMPR, we were, we were among a, like a small, like we were among a minority that actually stopped doing the, you know, the gray market stuff. You know, we closed our dispensary. Right. We made a big, we made a big deal of it. We press released the fact that we were like no longer, you know, breaking the law. That we're transitioning into this new program, 
and uh, and we opened Sante Cannabis, which is the the medical cannabis clinic in uh, in in Montreal, which is now kind of turning into a clinical research organization, right. uh, which I am not the one to speak to uh, <laughs> about that. Um, but we opened it in the village in Montreal. Like we opened it in Montreal's gay village. Right. And so, you know, right down the street from all kinds of HIV community uh, centers. Yeah. And we're anticipating an influx of, of patients, you know, uh, into the clinic. None of them give a shit about the MMPR. None of right. them, they don't need an LP. They have friends, they have networks, they have dispensaries. Yeah. And so, you know, we anticipated actually a lot of buy-in from from the from the HIV community, but we, we didn't actually get it. Yeah. Um, I mean, tremendous success in other other uh, you know patient groups, but uh, but yeah, they just they just totally bucked the trend. Yeah. But it's cool because it's like I mean, like it, medical cannabis started in the HIV community. Yeah, right? absolutely. Like it started with the HIV epidemic. Yeah. And uh, that's why I think it's so so interesting and yeah. so important. Yeah. I mean, there are other barriers too. I think for like people who use drugs, for example, it's just hard to get a script. Like that doctors won't prescribe yeah. to you if, if you have other drugs in your system. It's that paradox. Yeah. yeah there's that paradox yeah. of like you're a stigmatized person who yeah. uses drugs. Yeah. You use cannabis. It's for sure a, a, a medicinal therapeutic. You know, element harm reduction. In that. It's a harm reduction tool. Yeah. It's a substitute. Uh, it's an anxiolytic. It's a sleep aid. It's all of these things, and uh, and you know, it's so they're like the easiest group to be branded as non-compliant, to be kicked out of these yeah. you know these these care environments that like could really help them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's prohibition-based stigma. Yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah. So if we could rewind a little bit, could you tell us a little bit about what the climate is like in Quebec, but also Montreal? Like, what was it like operating a dispensary at that time there? There wasn't that many there, was there? Uh, no, so what happened in 2010 was, and this is, a, this is, this is history repeating, because it's repeated itself since, uh, a bunch of bozos got into, you know, opened up non-professional dispensaries right. had, had no concern or clue around the optics and the, and the PR side of how to manage a medical cannabis enterprise totally just like thumbed their noses at the cops, thumbed their noses at the neighbors, sold a shit ton of weed, right. but pissed off everyone they possibly could and it prompted the rage of the authorities who at the time like could not legally distinguish between those assholes and the guys who had been, you know, doing this, you know, with as much rigor as possible for, for more than a decade. Right. And so everyone got shut down. And um, it repeated itself not too long ago when <laughs> cannabis culture came to Montreal, got a bunch of franchise owners, you know, did not really do their diligence on the people in those shops ran into Quebec and super impetuously, didn't even translate anything. They didn't even have scales when they opened, you know, like it was really uh, broche à foin, which we say in French, which is like, uh, it was uh, it was kind of like a hatchet job. Right, yeah. And again, just like totally pissed off all the authorities Yeah. Um, at the wrong time and, uh, and just like changed the, the course of things. Yeah, so what kind of impact do you think that that last round really had on the climate there? I think it's why the Crown Corporation won in Quebec. Right. I think I think it sealed the fate of private retail in Quebec. Personally. Really? Yeah. yeah, like following the expert forums and following a lot of the, the, the debates and the, and the consultation process around the law in Quebec, cannabis culture was brought up as an example of why private retail should not happen in Quebec. Right. At every at every consultation stop, from every right. public health official, from right. every law enforcement official, it was just like it was so bad. I remember seeing a couple of presentations from like people that were working with public health in Quebec, and they were really touting the nonprofit model as if like they were getting standing ovations oh, for yeah. their like, but no real kind of 
there wasn't really a, a, a wider acknowledgement of how the licensed production system operates federally and that, you know, province typically don't have jurisdiction yeah. over that stuff. So a really big disconnect. But yeah, they were really seemed to be pushing that more of like a non-profit retail model. Generally, the the climate in Quebec around cannabis, like it, there's, a, there's a bad signal to noise ratio in the Quebec media around cannabis. So like the sensationalism in the media there is amplified because it's not offset by just general coverage of the sector. Right. Uh, and that's always kind of been the, the case, but it, in Quebec now, yeah, they've they've the the public health authorities in Quebec, they they they've taken it like too far. Sometimes they're just like in their own bubble of hypothesis, and it's completely divorced from the reality of the cannabis consumer and the cannabis industry. Right. And they've been very successful at waging uh, a campaign that vilifies the cannabis industry entirely and, right. uh, and without warrant right. and infantilizes consumers uh, to the point where like you know it's it's uh, it's really it's really irksome it's really it's really frustrating to to have seen that happen um, and it's not like the system that's coming into Quebec is the end of the world right. it's not it's it's by no means ideal Mm -hmm. um, and it's and it's uh, and kind of everywhere. There's a lot of like bureaucratic impracticalities. Absolutely. To what's going on, we see it in BC with the central warehousing. We see it in Ontario with the with the LCBO and the CRC. LCBO period. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. like, and 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 so, you know, it's not the end of the world. Like yeah. we're legalizing weed. It's a big deal. Yeah. It's still great. Yeah. And we can criticize. And there's we have all these valid criticisms of of the shops and these and the, these models. But yeah. you know, day one. Everybody's going to be Instagramming themselves outside of the legal weed shop buying legal weed. It's absolutely. going to be a big deal. Yeah, it will absolutely be a big deal. So, but the climate in Quebec is just—I <clears throat> uh, mean, politically, uh, generally, the the Assemblée Nationale, which is the legislature, is just clueless about cannabis. Right. I mean, we have a liberal party that's like our conservative party, just like BC. Yeah. With the liberals are basically just conservatives in disguise. Um, <laughs> that took me so long to get when I was here. I was like, wait, what's happening? Yeah. 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 But in Quebec, the opposition parties are even worse. So like, you know, the base exactly. the baseline are these like blue liberals and then you know, the, their opposition are just even crazier on the file. Oh, you know, man. like their their opposition is like we're not being strict enough. Right. In Quebec, like <laughs> their age limit should be twenty five. Like, aren't you listening to these psychiatrists citing bad evidence? Like, <laughs> psychiatrists. Yeah. Come yeah. on. Yeah. Um, but what about what does the medical cannabis access program look like in Quebec? Because it's a bit different there than everywhere else, and I don't think a lot of people know that. So, like, yeah. what does it take in Quebec? The College of Physicians in Quebec mandates that physicians who prescribe cannabis do so under a research framework. Right. It's, it's mandatory. Uh, and there's a perception that the only research framework that you can participate in is the Quebec Cannabis Registry, which is, uh, which is Mark Ware's registry. Right. Uh, and the University of McGill and CCIC and, and College of Physicians, would, and funded by Canopy, actually. Right. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, also it's like everywhere. Yeah, we're 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 everywhere. Um, but the uh, but it, it it makes it complicated for physicians. It's like it, it it's made it a little bit difficult for physicians to buy into the program. Um, there's general there's general just fear of of a witch hunt from the college, which right. is not it's not grounded in anything to be honest. Like I've, the college is not out to get physicians who prescribe cannabis. Right. Um, but the, it's the college's position that cannabis is an unrecognized treatment. Uh, and, and in fact, they dusted off an old policy that they had on unrecognized treatments from like years ago and, and based their, their medical marijuana policy on this. So, and, and the result of this is that Quebec only represents 3% of ACMPR right. registrations. And don't a majority of those registrations come through Sante Cannabis? Uh, easily, easily half of them come from come through Sante Cannabis, and the other half are spread between uh, you know a handful of other doctors who are doing it on their own, right? And uh, and then like the Skype referral clinics that are kind of popping up a little bit everywhere, right? And there's you know the optics that go with that too, right? But, so, so yeah, low numbers in Quebec, low buy-in, low numbers of patients, low numbers of LPs. There's only there's six users. Are there a lot of users in Quebec? Because oh. I remember cannabis culture, like at the very least, what it did demonstrate was that there was a demand. Oh, like people smoke weed in Quebec. A lot of people are smoking weed there. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So I mean, like my experience in Quebec is 
I've, I've been to like a number of small towns in Quebec where the people there insist that their small town is the capital of wheat growing. You know, it's this like <laughs> universal story. Uh, it's it's everywhere there. It's enculturated. There's like there there are people. I, I know. It was trippy for me because I you know I don't I didn't come from a family that did drugs at all, let alone touch cannabis. But like I've met a lot of people in Quebec who trimmed helped their parents trim their crops. Like the <laughs> cannabis, you know, the cannabis industry was their uh, supplemental income that right. they helped with. They don't they don't even smoke, but their parents grew it and they trimmed it. Like I've met a lot of people like this. It's very much a part of Quebec society. Right. And certainly in Montreal, I mean like it's, it's funny, we don't have, like, we have a big 420 protest. We don't always have a global marijuana march, but, right. like, in Montreal, there's a drum circle every Sunday. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. so people are like, oh, not much protesting going on in Quebec. It's like, actually, every Sunday is a big weeds fest at the mountain. You right. Know? Uh, so it's almost like, it's almost so ubiquitous that it goes unnoticed. Right. And, and, and on the flip side, like, I don't know that, like, cannabis consumers are are as engaged politically as they are uh, in Toronto and Vancouver. Right, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, and all of that has led to what we are seeing now. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when thinking about your next move, so you're transitioning from the clinic, you're going into the new legal industry, yeah. you obviously caught some shit for that. You yeah. know, what what were what was like your kind of thinking around that decision? What were you worried about? And you know, what kind of feedback did you get? <laughs> <laughs> so I was so the the background is like I'd been at the I'd been at Sante Cannabis for two years. With, you know, Aaron Prosk and I co founded the clinic and with Dr. Michael Dworkin and Marcia Gilman and, and a few other doctors, Sean Zigby, uh, I, I could list them. But um, <laughs> I and I so we had a number of doctors, but I was like the lead educator at the clinic for two years. I like we had we had a hand, we had five or six doctors and one educator. Right. So you know I, I literally coached the first thousand or so patients that came through Santa Cannabis, and it was really just it was it was wearing me down. Totally. <laughs> you know, so yeah. there was there was a burnout factor, um, but there was also just like it was also coming time to replace me with nurses and people who are actually, you know, working in healthcare. People right. who are actually healthcare professionals. Right. Not just healthcare professionals played on TV. <laughs> Featuring. Yeah. And I mean like I'm I'm you know, I'm I'm a good cannabis counselor and educator, but in a clinical setting you need nurses and, and pharmacists and, and these kinds of people to, to take that on. And uh, and um, and so yeah, I was I was kind of planning I, I knew I was going to work with a licensed producer. Uh, you know, I knew I had to make the leap to a licensed producer. We were consulting with a few actually at the time, um, helping them on with various things, and also sort of getting a feel for their corporate culture and what have you. Right. And um, and we were consulting with Canopy at the time, and uh, and I really loved the culture there, the the best of all of all the LPs that uh, that we were kind of talking to. Um, and it was also, uh, I mean, I got, the, the job came about actually because of a, of an April Fool's prank that I, I played on Twitter. <laughs> the Twitter job fair. Yeah, the Twitter job fair. And uh, I made a joke that I was hired to do dispensary relations for Tweed, which was like an absurd proposition. At the time, a couple, it a couple of years ago, yeah. when you know there was a huge divide between LPs and dispensaries, and yeah. there wasn't like the kind of there is actually a lot of unity now um, in the in the scene, which is which is a great development. But at the time, it was an absurd proposition. Yeah. But I, I mean, like the Globe, uh, Mike Hager from the Globe messaged me, wanted to interview me about it, like. Uh, Vice, Damien. I remember just like tons of people being it. like, "Congratulations!" Oh yeah, yeah. Like, like, it went like. <laughs> You know, viral within the, the cannabis community. Yeah, before. cannabis Twitter was on fire. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yeah, but uh, but literally days later, I was I was I was speaking with Mark and Bruce and and Rade and, and trying to figure out trying to carve out something for myself and in Tweed and then that turned into the Quebec engagement role. So um, I became head of Quebec engagement officially in uh, it's like July or August of mm -hmm. of 2016. I made the announcement. Um, huge, I mean, it, it was mostly congratulatory. To be honest, it was like mostly positive. But I got a there was a huge backlash from, uh, you know, 
the 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 activist uh, demagogy, you know, the sort of like the activist uh, what's it called the, the activist pantheon, right? Right. And uh, I was called a sellout and a shill and uh, you know uh, whatever you, you name it. I, I even got some anti-Semitic hate mail. I got some oh, all right. kinds of all kinds of uh, nasty stuff and people saying nasty nasty shit about like you know carpet bagging and whatever um but you know it was it, it gets to you if you let it but i'm like i'm i was always uh for me that was always an end game like not necessarily an end game but like a step in this whole process of right. legitimizing cannabis right. you know and um and it was a huge opportunity. I mean, like, yeah. Canopy's the biggest in the space. Yeah. Uh, they also put out a press release when they hired you. Like, you got to be a kind of big uh, deal. I got, I got press release. That, got was, press a release. that yeah. was a big deal. That was a big deal. That was that was super flattering. My ego exploded. You yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> it helped. And my ego going, you know, massive helped uh, sort of like deal with all the hate mail I was getting. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it was it was good. I mean, like working. It, I, it was always important for me to eventually work with a licensed producer because of just the how amplifying that platform is mm-hmm. you know like it, the the license the cannabis companies going public is the biggest thing to happen in cannabis yeah it's a huge ever, deal ever yeah. It, yeah. it like it doesn't touch the years of activism that that came before it like or sorry the, I meant the opposite the, the all the activism that preceded Canopy going public and Tweed going public and eventually all these other LPs mm-hmm. uh didn't it, it did not touch like the amount of conversation and, and discussion and discourse generated by by weed yeah. going corporate absolutely I, I like one of the things I focused on in my research was like when did cannabis become a commodity that everyone was like oh yeah this is cool we can invest in this now yeah. that was like that's like a a once in a lifetime transition you yeah. know like yeah. we'll never maybe see that again I remember reading the first MMPR with Radde Radde oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Was now, he's now like VP of camp. Yeah. He's a big deal. <laughs> He's a big deal at Canopy. He runs the show. Yeah. Uh, he runs several shows, not just, you know. But <laughs> a show. <laughs> he runs a show. Um, I remember reading the MMPR with him over the phone, and we were just like, I was like, this is legalization. <laughs> we were re- I was like, this is... The blueprint. This is what it looks like, you know? And, yeah. And it was, it was super exciting. Um, and so, yeah, it's... Uh, but, yeah. Uh, it's completely changed the discourse. And now, now I talk to activist friends. Mm-hmm. All my activist friends are like all of a sudden stock gurus to all of their like retail investor friends. Totally. You know, I was, I had friends call me, they came out of the woodwork yeah. to like call me and ask me like, like what stocks to buy yeah. and like all this. I, I like financial literacy is like, <laughs> Low end? not my forte. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> You know, like, I didn't even know what an IPO was until the MMPR came about and these things were happening. And, you know, there was, like, uh, Blaine and I used to joke about, Blaine had a good line uh, about how it was, like, the era of, like, shotgun weddings. (laughs) Where, like, you had all these, like, old, you know, these grower OGs, like, all these weed growers and dispensary guys who've been, like, gray black market forever all of a sudden just getting like shotgun married with investors and Bay Street guys <laughs> and like yeah yeah because like you know you got to get your application in you got to yeah. like everyone was like we have to become LPs like we have no other choice if we want to continue what we're doing we have to become LPs yeah and uh, and it just meant all these kind of funny sudden marriages of with people. Yes, I still get calls from like people from my high school, for example, being like, what stocks do I need to invest in? I know yeah. nothing about stocks. I, st- I don't even know what an IPO is, so whatever. But I just like, I base it on the companies that I like and the people that I like. Yeah. And, you know, I've had, I had one of my friend's dad invested in Canopy like early on when it was like, like a dollar or something like that. So last time I saw him, he's like, I can retire on what just happened there. And I was yeah. like, why are they charging for this? It's, it's, it's insane. <clears throat> and more people come up to me now at, at forums and trade shows and whatever, and they say, you know, I don't smoke this stuff, but uh, I've invested. <laughs> Everyone's it's like, invested. It's changed the conversation. Yeah. And also people's, like, financial literacy. Like, it's yeah. pushing people to get investor line or whatever those programs totally. are and do it themselves and totally. learn. Yeah, it's... Uh, 
it's democratized cannabis in a it's paradoxical sort of how it's democratized it yeah. and made it so so mainstream. Yeah, and super accessible. Almost to the point where like, you know, the you know, the activist pantheon there's like a there's like a grieving acceptance sort of process that we have to go through because we're winning. Right. Yeah. You no, know, it's like shit, everyone can do this now. Yeah. Yeah. It's not you, you know, you can't um, you can't make it on audacity alone anymore. In mm-hmm. cannabis, that used to be the case. It was just like, oh, you have the guts to like sell weed illegally yeah. in the store, yeah. like, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> oh, true. and you're like layering on all of this like procedural rigor and like checking medical documents and stuff like that before you sell in cannabis. Like, wow, it's complicated. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. But now, like, everybody has a, everybody's an aspiring entrepreneur. Everybody's an aspiring investor. Yeah. You know, uh, it's it's wild. So, and and I'm like. I'm immensely privileged to, to, to work with Canopy and to be with the leader in the sector during this transition. Like, I couldn't have ever imagined that I'd be where I am today, you know, back when my mom was, like, asking me for dope that morning. <laughs> it's know? so true, yeah. Like, what were some of the really hard challenges of that transition for you? So I noticed you got a little bit more quiet on Twitter, but it didn't totally... You didn't yeah. disappear, but yeah. you definitely got quieter. A little bit of self-censorship. A little bit of self-censorship. A little bit of towing the line. Yeah. You got a nice haircut. A little bit of haircuts. Yeah. yeah. Snazzy headshots. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for me, it was... Uh, for me, the, the first transition was from dispensary to clinic. Right. Uh, that was, like, really tough for me personally. Erin handled it well. Erin was, like... Erin was a rock star. Erin is a rock star. And she just, like... You know, for her... It was no, it was no, no big deal. Right. Not selling cannabis anymore. But like for me, like it was really tough not being surrounded by cannabis of all different kinds and being able to complete that consult mm-hmm. with supply. Right. Because right. the the clinic work and the dispensary work consultation wise was the same. I was doing this. I was having the same conversations with people and guiding them according to their treatment objectives and their experience with cannabis to different products and so forth. But like they weren't right in front of me. Right. And like you, you realize just how key that is in the whole interaction and that relationship is like, smell the jar. Oh, smell this one. Let me show you this one. And like for them to be able to see it is just such a destigmatizing sort of paradigm shift. Absolutely. And being able to say, I remember in like orientations when I was doing my field work, like people had never even seen cannabis, had no idea how to like pack a pipe or roll a joint or, you know, and there's, there's just, you know, how do you bridge that now? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm teaching people how to use vaporizers in a, in a clinic office. Right. Uh, they're, I, they're coming in with medical problems. They're seeing a doctor and I'm telling them that their weed will be there in a week. Right. And they should come back with the cannabis and then I will show them. It was just, it complicated. There was a, there was a massive complication of everything. Uh, and sort of a proceduralization of, of all of that because you have to be rigorous like that with a clinic. Like we were extremely rigorous as a dispensary, but like no one came in to inspect. Right. Working in a clinic, it's hyper-regulated, the practice of medicine. Right, like you have the the College of Physicians can come in and go through any of your doctor's files. They can, you know, they can come in without a warrant. Right. I mean, at least with the dispensary, the cops had to have a warrant before they like, break down your door. Yeah. Right. Like medical regulators don't need warrants. Right. Right. Because they're regulating a profession, and uh, and and so all of that was was completely new, and there was just like a very rough learning curve for for both of us uh, in that transition. And, and it was like, I, it was like, I, I grieved it a lot. You know, yeah. I, I really mourned it. I mourned the relationships I had with my growers. I mourned, um, just the complexity of the system. Like, you know, it was, it was really frustrating for me that I couldn't just like go into my backpack where I had cannabis of my own and just give it to the person in the consult. Right. And because a lot of them were asking for that. 
Right. Pro you know, and you had to be like, no, sorry, you have to order it online. Oh, yeah. It was just like this whole like lesson in how to say no. Right. To people in need. It was just... Yeah, that's... Yeah. It was really tough. And also like the idea that I remember people at Medcan would come in and just buy one gram a day. Also, or Blaine would be giving out one gram a day to particular folks who like just couldn't afford it. Yeah. So there's like none of that now, especially yeah. with like minimum purchasing. I don't know if a lot of them charge shipping anymore, but shipping is still a concern. Like, yeah, shipping, tax. I mean, yeah, like all tax. of that is... A, is a reality uh, um, different quantities it's difficult to try stuff especially for a first time user I yeah. mean like it was so hard to be like okay yo you never use cannabis anymore well you gotta buy five grams of, of a strain that may not work for you yeah. and that you cannot return uh, and uh, just stuff like that just like you know working out the kinks of the MMPR program I actually the first uh the first time I received cannabis under the, I like that. I, I try to like keep the outlaw theme going a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And everything I do. So the first time I received cannabis in the mail from the in the LP system was as a caregiver for two patients. Okay. Um, two pediatric patients, and because we didn't have oil back then. Right? right. So I had to. I was going to make them some oil, and so I, I, I managed to. I got two 90-gram orders of cannabis for two different patients, but I picked them up at the same time at the post office. Okay. And so all of a sudden, <laughs> I'm in possession of 180 grams of cannabis, which is not allowed, right? And you're at the post office. <laughs> I'm at the post office, not the pharmacy line. And it's like dried weed, and these kids need oil, and like it's just like all these new absurdities. Right. As we like move into it. And there will be new, and we're seeing all the new absurdities with rec. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. So it's just, just various things I, I grieved as we turned from, you know, went from dispensary, very community oriented. We had yeah. HMs and we had the, the, our volunteer program and like tight connections with patients who came to our dispensary. Like it was a, it was a family. Right. And, uh, and, and and it was preserved somewhat with Sante Cannabis. I mean, like, Sante Cannabis has, like, a much broader scope, and it's, like, and it's accomplishing things that, like, we're not, we could not have accomplished as a dispensary. Like, Aaron and Sante Cannabis are doing clinical trials. Yeah, that's incredible. They're going to the get way. cannabis products. They're going to get DIN numbers for cannabis yeah. products, and, like, that's... Nothing's like, made it to, like, they're at, like, a stage three... I, I, I don't know. You should, you need to do a podcast. Yeah, you got to do a podcast yeah. with just Aaron, yeah. yeah. But I know what they're doing has like never been done before. Never, yeah. never. It's ground. It's groundbreaking stuff. Yeah. And it wouldn't have been possible had we not made that jump. So like it was right. all very worth it in the end. It was painful. It was, um, yeah. There's a whole. There, there's a lot of mourning. A lot of mourning. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. But, but it was. It was for. It was for the better. So what exactly are you doing in your current role right now? Like what is like you wake up? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I pick a nice sativa. No. Um, so I'm currently the Quebec brand manager at Canopy, and that uh, entails managing our uh, our Vare brand. So I, I developed, helped to develop with an agency our, our brand for Quebec and for the francophone market. Right. Um, I do. I'm a. I, you know, my title's brand manager, but I actually am. More like the French speaking, the French language spokesperson for Canopy right. in Quebec. Yeah. So more, most of my job is is uh, is in comms and PR. So, right. You know, anytime. making sure the CSSDP toolkits in French. Exactly, translating the CSSDP <laughs> toolkit, for example, uh, to helping to translate uh, all of Canopy's English content into into French. I'm not the translator, but it's a you know it's yeah. a it's a one of the aspects that I that I manage there. Are you seeing that more across LPs that they're, I would say that's, I think a lot of the times a lot of companies are guilty of not doing the bilingual. Oh yeah, sure. It's, it's, it's not, it's not unique to cannabis, right? right? Um, and before I came on board with, with Canopy, like Tweed wasn't really doing it very well either. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've helped to sort of bilingualize Canopy growth and the Tweed brand and that's all of its various brands and, uh, and I've represented Canopy and, in Quebec, uh, in French language and English stuff too, uh, for the last few years because, um, yeah, I mean, I had a lot of contacts and, and sort of clout in the, in the Quebec and Montreal media mm -hmm. 
for in my in my years as an advocate. You know, I've been doing radio and television for pot for years. Yeah. So it was really just a change in title. Um, and yeah, so that's uh, so that's my day to day. Oh, cool. Interview here, you know, always I'm, I talk Flying to in to Vancouver. Talk to journalists all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so yeah, we're uh, I actually I can't talk about what I'm doing in Vancouver today. It's a top secret. It's a top secret. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. So um, you know. If I said well, we're growing a lot of weed out here, I can say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, what are you hoping to see? Let's say it's October 2018. What do you hope to see in terms of what our legalization landscape looks like? What kind of would in October? Yeah, best well, case scenario. Best October. case October. Based on everything we know now. Everything that we know now. Uh, it's not. It's not a best case scenario. Like, <laughs> no, that's true. That's we can true. see what it's. We get. I mean, best case. I mean, within the constraints that we've been kind of. Best. Dipped. I mean, like, what I'd like to see is like uh, enough of the bickering around home growing and all that stuff. Like, just there's there's so much bullshit in the opposition right now. Like, the Realtors Association is just full of garbage on yeah. home growing. Like, they're just conflating, you know, organized crime. You know, gut a house and make four it grow plants up we're with like about. four I know. plants. It's that was a great point last week in the Senate where they're like, four plants is not a grow up. Yeah, it's not. So, uh, just I, I hope that sort of sensationalism will die down as like this becomes real and Canadians just like get used to it. Yeah. Most Canadians are already, I mean, like, I'm in Vancouver. Vancouver's used to it. Yeah, Vancouver's so used to it. Weed, it's right? confusing here. Like, if you didn't know anything about cannabis or what the laws were, you would totally think that it was already legal here. Oh, yeah. It's okay. really easy to fall into that. Um, but also, like, who's like, how many people are going to grow, really? You know? I bet you it's going to be a very small percentage. The people... It's the, just going to happen. People who love cannabis grow their cannabis. Yeah. You know? And people who have, like, it's... You can't... You, your living situation doesn't always make it possible, right? Absolutely. Like, you can't... Not everyone can grow, even if they want to. Yeah. Um, but, uh... So, yeah, I'd like to see some easing up on the on the sort of... On all that, you know, oppositional... BS around home growing. Um, I really, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, Health Canada rolling out the micro cultivation licenses and the yeah. micro processing. Because like, if we can't bring the craft cannabis movement into legalization, like this is a bust. This is going to be a bust. Yeah. Um, because that's where all the knowledge and genetics and know-how and culture is. Yeah. What's interesting is how is is how. Uh, will be so limited in, in in our capacity to tell those stories. So what do you mean? If you had the promotional restrictions and so forth, right? Like that, it, it, I'm I'm concerned too. I work for and I work for Big Weed, you know, right. and I'm concerned about the capacity for craft growers to be able to like tell their stories and to and for and just generally for us to be able to distinguish all of our brands from each other right. in this very neutral, uh, anti-promotional, anti-industry environment that we're that we're going into. Right, so you're saying that like part of the promotion couldn't include like the story of a grower that's been growing for 20 years. Yeah, you know, you look at transitioning uh, over. Yeah, or like, you know, the, yeah, it's, you read like a, a, a bottle of, you read a label on a bottle of wine, it tells you all about the vineyard and the type of grapes and like yeah, the Yeah, or when they the were like and liquor barons and the prohibition era, yeah, you yeah, know, the those are stories. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, the prohibition brew. Yeah, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm stoked on the micro producers. I'm stoked on on the the craft the craft cannabis movement really flourishing and and and, and blooming here and elsewhere. Um, I'm just I'm stoked for people to not like be arrested for weed anymore. Yeah. You know. Um, they might still be arrested for weed. I I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like I don't. There, it's a legit concern. But I I just like from a practical level. I don't know how enforceable these new provisions will be. Right. Or or that they will even be enforced by police officers. Right. It'll be public health it'll be health authorities who are like who are like tasked with enforcing these these things, right? Yeah. Um, which like could be a terrible thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. And also like discretion's a bit of a scary thing. Discretion is yeah, in just and in inequality and public consumption yeah, I think will be a big deal yeah there's all kinds of there's funny talk here about like what public intoxication means oh yeah I did like, see that and yeah. if you can like what wasn't it like a jail up to three months or something like that for yeah. being intoxicated in public in BC yeah but like how do you define that yeah. with what if I'm just tired like, but like is that even like 
Like, I feel like you have to be, like, belligerent, raging drunk to yeah. be arrested for that. Yeah, right. It's like, what's the threshold for weed? Like, right. what... I, I've never seen anybody on cannabis, like... But also, like, if you're consuming in public, then do you also automatically get a ticket for... Not That's just, question. That's you know, question. consuming in public, but also now you're intoxicated in public, which is actually more... I don't... I don't mean... I don't think so. I mean, I, I feel like you could, like, you could be drinking a beer, like... In a park, right, and that's open liquor, and it's open liquor, and you're not. There's got to, there's, there has to be some kind of higher threshold to meet yeah. to for it to qualify for that kind of charge. Right. I think David Bratzer was actually explaining that on Twitter. Oh yeah, um, I, miss, I missed that conversation. <laughs> See, now I'm out of the loop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just excited to see it all roll out, and to like to see it all happen. Like it's, uh, people ask me all the time, like, did you ever think you would like see the day? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah, yeah, man. Fuck yeah. Like, and it's actually coming true. And it's yeah, like, absolutely. Now's the time. So like, it's gonna be bumpy, and like, yeah. there's gonna be winners and losers, and yeah. you know, all kinds of new drama and new things to be happy and sad about. <laughs> you know, but I mean, and gen- generally, even like beyond cannabis, because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a anti-prohibitionist. You know, for all drugs, I, I'm really excited that this is like really driving that conversation yeah that is really close yeah. decriminalization is like a hot topic oh, decriminalization is palatable now yeah. it's never been palatable in public discourse and now we have like leaders of parties saying i'm going to decriminalize all drugs yeah. and it's like what we really need and really not even enough but what we need no but it's a it's a step it's so good and it's a step that you ha- that has to happen before like just the logic of like regulating that drug supply becomes self-evident absolutely and it doesn't i mean like uh, psychedelics and uh, narcotics are not, you know, should not be uh, promoted or, or like commercialized in the way that we've commercialized alcohol and cannabis. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it'll be really cool just to see what kind of new models come out for those eventually because as it stands, like, I feel like that's in our lifetime. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And also, like, opening up research potential and then with that, oh, yeah. it'll change the way we think about a lot of these Yeah, things. the medical utility of cannabis is going to, is like, we know more about this than we did yesterday and so forth and, you know, it, we're going to, we're going to learn so much about cannabis, the endocannabinoid system, uh, we're going to have, like, fine-tuned cannabis products for different ailments. Like, this whole, like, product-to-symptom matching yeah. nebulous exercise we've been doing in, in herbal cannabis for so long will be, like, more and more precise with yeah. time. Yeah. And um, and just, like, the breakthroughs, just, like, just the medical breakthroughs that are, that'll come about just via, like, our exploration and understanding of the endocannabinoid system that's, like, maybe even separate from cannabis itself are also super exciting. I mean, like, the discovery of THC in the ECS, like, has, you know, was a, was a medical revolution in the understanding of human physiology. Right. So that's, uh, I can look forward to more of that. Yeah, all of the things. <laughs> so I think we've come to the end of our time, so I just want to really thank you, Adam, for coming and spending time with Anytime. us today. Happy to ramble. <laughs> And again, uh, we just want to thank Niche and CannabisWise for supporting High Tea uh, at Ongro at Daily Hive. Our intro music is by Apollo D. Teodoro, and we'll see you guys soon.